You're listening to Sunday Sermons for Christ Pacific Church, located in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. Let's join Pastor Peter as we start our new series, A New Humanity, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Good morning. My name is Chloe, and I'm going to be reading today's scripture. So it's chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Um, But don't worry, the right one is written on the paper. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word for us. Sorry for messing you up there, Chloe. That was my mistake, everybody. Um, And uh, I don't know if you know this, but Chloe and Tanner are going to get married in a couple of months, which is really fun. Super cool. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Ride on to you who are meek, for you will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Congratulations to the merciful, for you will receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And ride on for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how Jesus begins his famous Sermon on the Mount, recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And Chloe just read uh, the beginning of part 2. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with those eight beatitudes, as they're called, or eight blessings. And you could hear that I took some liberty in translating that word, uh, blessed. It, it means congratulations. Right on. You're in sync. You get it. Good job. Amazing. 
Jesus offers these eight beatitudes, these eight blessings to us as he begins his sermon on the mount. And what he's doing is he's describing the blessings of the new humanity that Jesus is creating. You see, when we encounter the living God in and through Jesus Christ, when the kingdom of God breaks into our lives, he is forming in us new women and new men that together make up a new humanity, a new people. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is describing the blessings, the blessedness of this new humanity. And now we're turning a corner, so to speak, and now we are going to begin to hear Jesus speak about how that new humanity lives, how that new humanity that he's created in all of its blessedness, how this new humanity relates to God and relates to one another. So today we're, we're picking up where we left off back in the fall. In the coming weeks, we're going to be sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him instruct us about how to relate to him and others as this new humanity, as these new women and these new men. By the way, shameless plug here. If you missed any of those Beatitude sermons, you can go back and listen to them on our website or on our podcast. Information about how to do that's in the bulletin. I would encourage you to do that. These are really good words to listen to, to be blessed by Jesus in those Beatitudes. But as we continue on in his sermon on the Mount, as we listen to Jesus as he continues to preach his word, we are going to discover that his words are angular. Uh, they cut to the heart. They, they pierce our souls, so to speak. And that's because Jesus doesn't just tell us what we want to hear. Darn it. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews says this about God's word, about scripture. It says, indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render account. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it cuts, it gets to the heart of things. It gets to our hearts. And this is never more true in scripture, I don't think, than in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where his words pierce, they cut, they're difficult. They judge our thoughts and our intentions. In the next few weeks, we're going to listen to Jesus speak about anger, adultery, divorce, love for enemies, and a bunch more difficult things. I do sort of wish that Jesus hadn't said some of these difficult words. And even more, I am tempted to not preach on them, to uh, walk through the Sermon on the Mount, but just pick the easier parts of it to talk about. I... Confess that is a temptation, but there they are. 
There they are, Jesus' words on the page for us, speaking to us. And we've got to take them seriously. So as we listen to Jesus speak these angular, piercing, and cutting words, may I encourage you to let his words sink in, to give access to his words of your heart, to let him in, to let his words in. And I wonder if the pain that we might experience as we listen to God's angular words, I wonder if it's similar to the pain uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, when you go to the physical therapist, right? A physical therapist will provoke your joints, will provoke your muscles, and sometimes it hurts. But just like the physical therapist is provoking your muscles in order to promote blood flow and more oxygen and ultimately healing, in the same way, Jesus' words here, when they provoke our hearts, these words are aimed at healing and wholeness. And so may I encourage you, even when and if these words uh, land in a painful place, I encourage you to remain open and to perhaps let Jesus, the great physical therapist, do his therapy on your heart. We're going to dive into some commands that Jesus gives. And as we do that, it's really important that we approach the commands of Jesus with the momentum we gain from his grace. It's important that we approach the commands of Jesus with the momentum that we gain from his grace. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus offers us his grace, his unconditional love and gift of himself. And, and it's that grace that lifts us up and gets us going. It's that grace that makes us soar with him. And with that momentum that we gain from his grace, that's the momentum with which we can approach his commands. Because when we approach Jesus' commands, we're not starting from ground zero. The first thing Jesus says to us is not command. In fact, the way that God relates to his people is, I think always, but you should double check me on that. I think it's always the way that God relates to us is grace first, command second. Grace first, command second. For example, I talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, Jesus, or, or the Lord, the living God, uh, leads his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He leads them through the Red Sea and into freedom. He does that first, grace first. He rescues them, liberates them, not because they're amazing, but because he loves them and he's amazing. Grace first. And then at Mount Sinai, the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, commands second. So grace first, commands second. This is why the Ten Commandments that God gives at Mount Sinai, the first line of those Ten Commandments is not, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not the first line. Because remember, the way God always relates to humanity is grace first, command second. So the first line of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God. 
who rescued you from the land of slavery, who brought you up out of Egypt. Grace. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Command second. Okay, so it's really important as we approach these difficult and angular words of Jesus, these commands, it's really important that we approach them with the momentum that we gain from God's grace. Because God always relates to us grace first, command second. Although you should check me on that. I was tempted to say the Lord almost always relates to humanity that way. Because, you know, I, you should always be leery when you hear people say always, you know, all the time. But I, I actually think it might be true that the way God always relates to humanity is grace first, command second. But you check me on that and let me know later. This is what the New Testament scholar Dale Bruner, um, this is how Dale Bruner talks about this, this order of things. He says, the peculiar sequence of biblical ethics, the sequence of blessing and then command, of support before challenge, of indicative before imperative. This is the peculiar sequence of biblical ethics. And there is a friendliness about Jesus' ethic that takes much of its heaviness away. There's a friendliness of Jesus' ethic that takes some of its heaviness away. Remember Jesus first said, congratulations, right on, you get it. Blessed are you who have discovered that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have nothing with which to purchase God's approval. Congratulations that you get that because God loves you. Blessing first, command second. Are you with me? I've kind of belabored this point on, on purpose. Okay, so the eight Beatitudes that Jesus um, offers are followed by seven commands. And Chloe read for us the first two of those seven commands. It's these seven commands that we're going to dive into now. I wonder if that was on purpose, one for each day. I don't know. Command number one is a spiritual command, and it's all about honoring and obeying the scriptures. You know that whole bit about not one dot of an I or a dash of a T will be taken out of the law? Jesus is giving us this spiritual command where he's saying basically, look, you shall honor and obey scripture. Then commands two, three, four, five, six, and seven, those are all social commands. Right? So he begins with the spiritual command about obeying scripture, and then he gives six social commands. And I love how organized Jesus' mind seems to be, because of those six commands, guess what? The first three are moral and the second three are what we could call political. So the f- first three moral commands are about anger, adultery, and divorce. And then the next three political commands are about making oaths, retaliation, and love for enemies. Right? So command one is spiritual. Commands two through seven are social. And Jesus begins these seven commands with the command to honor and obey scripture because in each of the following six commandments, Jesus is going to say some version of this. You have heard that it was said such and such, but I say to you this and that. And it's going to kind of sound like Jesus is saying, look, 
You have heard in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, you have heard such and such. But I'm saying something different to you. So forget about that and just listen to what I'm saying. Abandon the Old Testament and just listen to what I'm saying. Don't worry about the old law. Just pay attention to the new law. It's going to sound like Jesus is doing that. But we know he's not because Jesus begins with this spiritual command about honoring and obeying all of Scripture. And in fact, not a single dot of an eye will be removed from the Scripture. Jesus says in verse 17, he says, uh, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets was a common way of referring to what we call the Old Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Old Testament. The Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what Jesus calls the law and the prophets, this was Jesus' Bible. The scripture that Jesus had was what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying he has not come to abolish his Bible. In fact, he's come to fulfill it. He's come to fill it up to its full meaning. It has been relatively popular among some Christians to abandon Jesus' Bible, to abandon the Old Testament. This got popular in the second century when this Bible teacher, well, he wasn't really a Bible teacher, uh, a a deformed New Testament teacher named Marcion made popular. So it became known as Marcionism to, um, to just abandon the Old Testament. You know, toss it in the trash. It's old. It's no good. All we need to pay attention to is the New Testament and the words of Jesus. Now, there's not a whole lot of people talking about Marcionism these days. Um, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to uh, find a, a Marcionism church uh, if you uh, looked up on uh, Google. I almost said Yellow Pages. When I was first looking for a church, when I moved to Berkeley, California, I actually used the yellow pages. So remember last week how I said some snarky comment about how I'm not that old? I am that old. (laughs) I used the yellow pages. Okay. Uh, So nobody's really calling themselves Marcionites these days. But, you know, we still, there still is a clear and present danger of us abandoning the Old Testament. Because let's face it, it's difficult. Plus, it's 10 times longer than the New Testament. You know, I kind of prefer the shorter version. And it seems kind of harmless on the surface anyway to abandon the Old Testament and just focus on the New Testament. But if Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it, then disciples of Jesus must take seriously the Bible that Jesus read. By the way, I wonder if we might have an increased love for the Old Testament if occasionally we referred to it as Jesus's Bible. Hey, uh, there's a, uh, like if you're doing the year in the Bible reading plan, there's a, a portion that comes from Jesus's Bible. There's a portion that comes from the New Testament. Right? I wonder if our love and appreciation for the Old Testament might grow a little if we uh, referred to it that way. Listen to Dale Bruner again. You're going to hear a lot from him. He's talking about the uh, Old Testament. For this book was Jesus' personal library. It was his shelf of books. In owning an Old Testament, we have the exciting privilege of owning Jesus' personal library. 
I hope you're listening for God's voice through Jesus' Bible as well, for those of you who are doing the year in the Bible. Okay, so Jesus says, I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. Did you know this is so interesting? That word fulfill in Hebrew is the word kum. And kum literally means to raise, to erect, to set up, to put in place. Kum is the word in Hebrew used for resurrection. I have come not to abolish, but to resurrect the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill, that is, to bring to life the words of our Old Testament. And Jesus does this by drawing out the original intent of the law. You see, in many ways, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, it had become brittle. And it had become lifeless in the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. Those were the um, the religious people and the serious people. It had become brittle and, and lifeless, the Old Testament had. Jesus has come not to throw it out because it had become lifeless, but to resurrect it. By fulfilling it, by filling it with its full intended meaning. Kum, resurrect. So we can say that God raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus raised the Old Testament from the dead. Now, we might be tempted to think that the reason the the Old Testament scriptures had become kind of lifeless and kind of brittle was because the scribes and the Pharisees, they had become so focused on the letter of the law and had become so strict that you must obey every single minutia of the law and you must be careful not to disobey any of it. But they had lost sight of the, the heart behind the law. Right? They had lost sight um, of the spirit of the law. But listen to how John Stott corrects our thinking here. John Stott was the Anglican pastor, uh, theologian, and if you read anything from him, you'll be blessed. John Stott helps us see that Jesus is addressing a problem with the law that is kind of the opposite of what we sometimes think. I'm going to read this a couple times because it's a mouthful. John Stott is an Englishman. In order to make obedience more readily attainable, the scribes and Pharisees restricted the commandments and extended the permissions of the law. They made the law's demands less demanding and the law's permissions more permissive. Right? They made the law's demands less demanding and the law's permissions more permissive. They watered down the law. It's very contemporary. But Jesus here is reversing both of these tendencies. He fills up the full meaning of the law. So Jesus is reeling in this relaxation of the law by letting the law's demands and permissions stand as they are. So, for example, let me put a little meat on these bones. For example, the scribes and the Pharisees, the serious people, they had restricted the prohibitions of murder and adultery to the act alone. So you're only breaking the law If you participate in the act alone, Jesus extends these commands. He fills up the full meaning of these commands 
by including angry thought, insulting words, and lustful looks. You see, Jesus fills up the command to its original intent. Here's another example. The scribes and the Pharisees, they attempted to widen the permission of divorce to make it easier, basically, to get a divorce. They widened the permissions to include just about any reason that any husband would have on any whim to grant his wife a certificate of divorce. And remember, in the world in which Jesus was living, this was a world in which women had very few rights or privileges. And so a man could simply decide one day, you know what, this isn't working out, and grant his wife a certificate of divorce done deal. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 this is not what the law is about. Jesus comes and fills up the original intent of the law. He fulfills He fills it full. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Okay, so Jesus has come not to toss out our Old Testaments. He's come to show that through him it's been fulfilled. And he's come to fill its meaning back to its fullness, to its original intent. So that was the first command. Honor and obey Scripture Not just the New Testament, but the whole thing. The second command directs us to relate seriously with our neighbor. So the first is about relating seriously with God. The second command is about relating seriously with other people. At its simplest form, all this bit about being angry, its simplest form, this is about healthy human relationships. That's what this is about. I'm going to make three observations about this anger command. Three observations, and they are this. First of all, the nature of the anger that Jesus addresses. Secondly, the timing of the reconciliation that Jesus commands. And third, the scope of that reconciliation. So I'm going to talk about the nature of the anger that Jesus addresses. Then I'm going to talk about the timing that Jesus addresses with regard to reconciling. And then third, the scope of that reconciliation. So here we go. The nature of the anger that Jesus addresses. In the Greek language, the language in which Jesus was uh, speaking here, the language that Matthew chapter 5 is written in, there are two words for anger. Thumos and orge. Thumos and orge. And I wish that one word thumos was thanos, because that would make a lot of sense for those of you to whom it makes a lot of sense. If it doesn't, it's okay. You'll see the movie sometime later. Uh, Thumos and orge. So thumos is a word for anger, and it's the kind of anger that is easily sparked up that turns into a giant flame very quickly, kind of like when you toss a bunch of pine needles on the fire and the flame bursts. This is thumos anger. It flares up really quickly, and you know what? It also goes out and settles down and goes away pretty quickly. That's thumos anger. Maybe that's a temper tantrum version of anger. But there's another word for anger, and it's the word that Jesus uses here when he speaks about anger, and it's the word orge. Orge anger is the kind of anger that lies beneath the surface. Sometimes this word orge anger, to refer to this kind of anger, it's sometimes used to talk about mild anger. 
or um, relative anger. But the point is, it's the anger that sits beneath the surface and it's always there. So Thanos anger, no, Thumos, Thumos, Thumos anger is the kind of anger like when you put pine needles on a fire and it just flares up. Orga anger is the kind of anger, it's like the smoldering coals, right? And it's always there, it's underneath the surface, and the reason it's always there is because you're deciding to keep it there. Because you have a choice, don't you? Orge anger is like nursing a grudge. You know, you're keeping it alive, you're giving it energy, you're taking care of it, you're keeping it close to yourself because you care about it. That's why you're nursing it. This is orge anger that Jesus addresses here. He's talking about our choice to hold on to and to carry anger. Jesus is addressing this habit of carried anger. He's talking about our decision to stay angry. There's another aspect of this word that highlights what Jesus is getting at, and it's the, uh, the tense of the verb. So the verb, uh, first of all, it's a verb form of this word orge. Secondly, the form of the verb is a participle. So for you grammarians out there, a participle, especially a present participle, refers to an ongoing action. Right, so this orge anger is the kind of anger that is an ongoing action. It's repetitive, over and over, choosing again and again to nurse it, to take care of it, to keep it close to you because you care about this anger, you want to keep this anger, it's helpful to you sometimes, right? or so you think it's helpful to you. It's the participle form of this verb that Jesus uses. So he's not talking about that time yesterday when you got really mad for a few minutes. That's not what he's talking about. We might be tempted to think that Jesus is speaking against anger in general. That he is saying, look, don't ever be angry. In fact, anger is a sin, so don't go there. But Jesus must not be saying this because Jesus himself got angry for good reason. And you also get angry sometimes, and sometimes for good reason. What Jesus is addressing here is the same thing that the Apostle Paul was addressing in Ephesians chapter 4. I think it's verse 26. This is uh, this verse that we sometimes talk about with, um, with husbands and wives, that don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right? It actually says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So it's not wrong to be angry. It's wrong to not do anything about the anger that you're experiencing. Right? So don't nurse your anger overnight. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's speaking specifically of the kind of anger that we choose to carry. Okay, so the first observation had to do with the nature of the anger. Nursed anger. The second observation has to do with the timing of reconciliation that Jesus commands. And it is a command, by the way. Last week, I used the language of pro tips. You know, like Jesus is giving us pro tips or God is giving us you know, professional tips, tips from a professional on how to do life well. And, and we could say that about this. I mean, these are professional tips. Jesus is giving us tips on how to do life well. But really, pro tips is a, is a softened version here. Jesus is actually commanding us. 
So the command with regard to reconciliation, uh, the second observation I want to make has to do with timing. It's super straightforward. It's related to this command against nursing anger over time. Jesus is saying, look, pursue reconciliation ASAP as soon as possible. Even if you have to do it in the middle of something else that is really important. I'll be curious to see if anyone stands up and walks out during this uh, sermon because Jesus' first example is uh, it's kind of from a church context, right? It's, it's hey, if you are um, offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that, um, uh, that, you, uh, that someone has something against you or you have something against a brother or a sister, then go be reconciled. Leave your gift there at the altar. Go be reconciled and then come back later and offer your gift. In other words, Jesus is saying, it, do it now. His second example, he says, if you're on your way to court and your accuser, uh, with your accuser, then attempt to reconcile with him quickly. Quickly, Jesus says. Right, so clearly, Jesus is saying the timing with which we are to pursue reconciliation is ASAP. As soon as it is reasonable. Or maybe even before that. I, I'm not sure it's reasonable to leave your gift there at the altar, go reconcile, and then come back and then offer your gift. The point is, Jesus is saying, do it right away. Don't nurse that anger. Don't let that stew and don't let that anger or division become infected. That will not be good for anybody. So the timing is all about quickly. Okay, so the nature of the anger that Jesus addresses is the kind of anger that we nurse over time. Uh, The timing of reconciliation that he commands us to pursue is all about now. Do it quickly. Do it as soon as you possibly can. The last observation has to do with the scope. This is super straightforward as well. Jesus offers two examples of how to get started down this road of reconciliation. The first example is from a church context where he says, you know, if you're there at the altar and you're giving your offering, your gift, and you realize that someone has something against you, go be reconciled to your brother or sister. And the idea is that even in the community of faith, that we are to, well, not even, we are to pursue reconciliation when our relationships are divided in the community of faith. If you have something against your brother or sister, or if your brother or sister in Christ has something against you, go now quickly and be reconciled. Jesus' second example comes from the public space. He says, if you're on the way to court with your accuser, and note that Jesus does not say anything about brother or sister. He doesn't call the accuser your brother or your sister. And so it seems as though Jesus is addressing, I don't know, the marketplace or your school or your workplace or your neighborhood where you're in a situation with someone maybe who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't share the same values that you do. And Jesus says, in that scenario, same thing. Pursue reconciliation quickly. So the scope is universal. There aren't different categories of different people where you know, we would pursue reconciliation differently with one category of people than we would with another category of people. I think Jesus is saying whether uh, the person that you feel uh, friction with, whether they're a believer or not, whether whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what color or stripe or flag they bear. Pursue reconciliation quickly. So that's 
the scope. Jesus is here in his Sermon on the Mount instructing us on how to live life to the fullest as a member of this new humanity. As we walk through the whole Sermon on the Mount in the next several months, we're going to be looking at this new humanity that Jesus has created and is creating in you. And just as we began with blessings, with the Beatitudes, we will see blessings all along. And we will also hear Jesus' difficult, challenging, angular words that that cut to our hearts, that pierce to our souls. And as we listen again, I'm going to encourage you to remain open to the words of Jesus, though they may be painful to hear at first. He is an expert physical therapist, and he wants nothing more than for you to experience healing and wholeness and restoration and reconciliation in him. You are the new humanity. And we're going to listen to Jesus talk to us about what that looks like. Now, I imagine that as I was talking about this whole anger bit, that some of you um, had some names and faces come to mind. People in your life that you uh, need to pursue reconciliation with. People where uh, in your life there's a, a division, there's divided relationships, things are not well. And so we're going to close this morning by inviting you into a time of prayer. I'm going to lead you through a brief prayer exercise where I want to invite you to consider uh, these people or maybe this person in your life that maybe God was nudging you about. You know, pursue reconciliation with her. You know, even though it wasn't your fault, Jesus is still commanding you, pursue reconciliation with him. So let's close in prayer. So I just want to invite you to imagine a person. And um, let's not shoot for the moon right now. Let's not imagine all the people, but maybe just one person. One person that maybe you've been nursing a grudge against. Someone who has accused you rightly or wrongly. Someone with whom your relationship is um, divided. And I want to invite you to imagine having a conversation like this with that person. Imagine saying something like this. Because I love Jesus, and because I know Jesus loves you... I want to reconcile our relationship. I confess I have nursed anger against you, and I'm here to apologize to you and to repent of that decision. I really would like to do everything in my power to repair our relationship, beginning today with my renouncing of my own anger. So from this moment on, I will trust in Jesus to empower me to pursue healing in our relationship. Would you like to join me in that?
Jesus, it's much easier to imagine that conversation than to actually have it. So would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to have the courage, the humility, the faith, the whatever it is that we need from you, empower us to pursue that conversation in so much as it is within um, our realm of possibility. Empower us to pursue reconciliation. Jesus, thank you that you are a Lord of reconciliation, that you're really good at reconciliation, that you gave yourself for the reconciliation of the human race, for all of creation, in fact. Jesus, help us to trust you as we put one foot in front of the other and pursue your commands down this road toward reconciliation. We trust that you would not lead us astray, but that you would walk with us, for you are faithful. We pray these things in the faithful name of Jesus, our reconciler. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Christ Pacific Church, visit our website at www.cpchb.org and follow us on social media at Christ Pacific Church.